everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you on 610 ESPN, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, it was some week in Philadelphia once again. Let's let's run through it all. How it, you doing, it's, man? It's not good, though. <laughs> Normally, we come on the show, and there's good things to talk about. So no, no sunshine and roses, Jeff, today? You know, you, usually, you know, we were going to have next week our Festivus show and our airing of grievances. You're going to air some grievances this well, week, I don't have any grievances that you I, you have a grievance that we're going to be dealing with later. But, I do have a but, grievance. But a, a, an airing of, of worry. I, I may I may that? bring that grievance up again next or, week. Or an airing of woe. Yeah, it's been um, it's been an up and down week for the organizations. Um, we'll get into the Eagles in a minute. You know, Flyers still kind of finding their their legs with the new general manager, making changes. Uh, unfortunately, the same coach. Unfortunately, same coach. Uh, I don't know how long that'll happen if they keep having games like they did Wednesday night where they're leading most of the game and give up two goals in regulation and one in overtime in a span of a hundred a minute and 47 seconds to lose they fired the wrong guy I don't know whether they fired the wrong guy or whether both of them should go I do think that well then they fired one too few guys how's that Potentially. All right. I, I mean, so, okay, let's, let's start with that real fast. So, if let's say that you found out today, Joe, Joel Quenville, who is not coaching right now. Right. Let's say you could get him as your coach now. Would you hire Dave Hack, fire Dave Haxtell? Um, I, I don't really care too much for the choice you've given me. Okay. Uh, but I would fire Dave Haxtell because it's just not working. What about if a coach that you want wouldn't be available till the end of the season? Would you keep him on? No. So, you would just make the change yeah, to make I, the change? I, I, think, I think it's time. Okay. I'm, I'm not saying make it make a change for the sake of making a change. I've never believed in that, but uh, but I am saying that it's time. It, it's clear the players are not. We've we've talked for not months for years about the the sum of these parts do not add up. And as long as the sum of these parts don't add up, then that's got to be partially on the coaching. All right. Well, we may get more into that later in the show, but we'll touch on that first. Sixers. We will definitely have more to get into. Tough loss on Wednesday night for them as well. Do you want some? Uh, by the way, do you want some tissues to wipe the tears away from your eyes on the Eagles too? Oh, I'm going to get there. Yeah. So why, why, don't, why don't we go to something that's a little more fun? Yeah. Happy. Let's start thinking of warmth just with be baseball. Very sad on so, the so basically, in just about two months, a little more, Jeff. Yeah. Spring training starts. Yes. Uh, that excites you. It makes me smile. I, I know. I know it does. It, um, it means warmer weather. <laughs> the winter meetings. <laughs> Were baseball. The winter meetings were this week. Uh, when we talked to Todd Zalecki, I think we were hoping for a little bit more right. out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you run through what's happened this week so far, and then let's talk about where the team stands after some of these moves. Well, we got Andrew McCutcheon. Okay. Do you like if, that? If it were four years ago, I'd be jumping for joy. Okay. Uh, he was an MVP. He's been, I think, a five-time All-Star. He's been a gold glover. But Andrew McCutcheon from four years ago with the Pirates is not Andrew McCutcheon of today who's been who's this will now be his fourth team probably in less than a year and a half um, you know he went to the Giants and then he went to the Yankees and now he's coming here it I get it as long as this is not the piece if this is their big move 
then I have a problem with it. If he's going to be the the left fielder or the right fielder, I'm okay with it. It really has to be left field because he doesn't have much of an arm. And he doesn't have the ability to cover center field the way that he did beforehand. But if this means that Nick Williams and Odubel and some other pieces are going to be for another big move like Corey Kluber, for instance, then I'm okay with it. And he's a good guy. That that's I, I like the clubhouse presence right. because you got a, a bunch of guys who are going to need to learn how to be professionals. And McCutcheon's a guy who I think can take a little of the burden of the leadership role from a Reese Hoskins who's not quite as vocal and Aaron Nola who's not quite as vocal. He can sort of take that attention. Uh, he's a good guy in the community. So I think there's lots of reasons why it's a good move. Granted, I would have liked him four years ago as well. It's not like he totally fell off the edge of the planet last year. He still had 20 home runs and hit 255 his career batting average is 287 so we'll see what it does I, I would like to see them do more they did meet this week with Scott Boris talked about his clients Bryce Harper and Zach Britton well but the word was is that the Phillies did not meet with Bryce Harper they didn't meet with Harper right. they met with Boris mm-hmm. and talked about so but Bryce Harper has supposedly met with other teams during the course of the week it seems like so and I don't know what this, that's about we've heard this from a few places that they're more interested in Manny Machado than they are Bryce Harper. Manny Machado has said that of his four teams he's going to visit, Citizens Park will be one of those places. So it, it, it looks like some of Maybe the, he just wants some cheesesteaks, though. May, I don't blame him. Right. But it looks like some of the, the talk that you've heard is, is sort of how it's shaking out in terms of how our things are playing. So let, let's look through, now that they made some of the changes, where the team stands. Last year, they had the worst batting average in all of baseball. They were 234, um, the fewest hits of any team through 162 games. So additions, Gene Segura hit 304 last year, 287 for his career. As I said, McCutcheon's 255. Mm-hmm. You subtract Santana at 229, who got traded again today, uh, yesterday, by the way. Um, <laughs> Mariners fans seem pretty happy. Yeah, they didn't mind that move. Cleveland fans, I'm not so sure. No, I don't think they're sure what's going on. And you subtracted Crawford, who was 214. Right. So you would think that while there is more to do, the well, moves. well, well. I, Crawford didn't have enough at bats that it really mattered one way or the other. That's not going to change. Were you sold anything. on Crawford though? You've seen him in the minors coming up. You've seen him more than a lot of other people. Where did you stand on Crawford? He's had some struggles staying healthy. Uh, He's. I never saw him as a big time hitter. I saw him as a very good fielder. Um, I never understood the hype, and, and sometimes, I mean, a lot of teams do this. The Phillies tend to do it a lot, though. Uh, they overvalue, and Todd Zalecki said that last week, they tend to overvalue their prospects. I mean, you can go back to, uh, dare I say, Dominic Brown, who was untradeable and then became uh, unplayable. So th- they've had a history of overvaluing their prospects. Getting good value for them is always important, but overvaluing to the point that you hurt your team because you're not making trades is what worries me. J.B. Crawford, they they actually were able to get value from even at his higher point. Gene Secura would be a good trade. I, I just like that move, yeah. and then we'll get into the arms. But I'm confused the about the plan for him. Well, after our conversation 
conversation with Todd, I was yeah. more confused about the plan because I thought all along that he'd be your shortstop. Right. That you'd go after Machado at third base. Oh, I meant his hit. I meant the hitting plan. Oh, the hitting. Yeah. yeah I, I don't understand I why think he Gabe wouldn't. Kepler have... said he's going to bat second in yeah, the lineup. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. To me, that you... what about if Roman Quinn's your leadoff hitter with speed? Does that make more sense if Roman is batting leadoff with speed on the bases and Segura is at two as a contact hitter? I'll take that. That, that to yeah. me is where I'd like to see them go if Segura is not going to be one. But I, but I don't want to see. I haven't heard one see, thing about I Roman Quinn I don't want to see Cesar if he's on the team at one. Right. I don't want to see like some of these experiments that they've tried in the past. Um, it's just not what I'd like to see. A uh, name we still haven't heard this offseason, Mikel Franco. Still on the team, Jeff. <laughs> He is? Nobody proceeds like he is. I know. He is still your starting third baseman, no? He's still a third base, a guy who plays third base, but he appears not to be. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is all a, a motivational tactic that we're just not in tune to. Ignore uh, him. And yeah. Well, the fact is he's here. If they don't get Manny Machado, I'm okay with putting Franco at third base. He's not the worst of your problems. In terms of the, the power in the lineup now, they they were in the middle of baseball last year with 186 homers. Adam McCutcheon will help, but, uh, you know, they need something more. So to your I hope this isn't the last move that they make comment, mm -hmm. that doesn't do it in terms of the power in the lineup. A Machado or a Harper or, you know, like you said, a Corey Kluber or somebody like that. Right. That sort of changes the game a little bit. So let me ask you about the flexibility that you now have to make some moves with the McCutcheon there. You know, the Jeff is now the GM of the Phillies. You have these extra pieces. Oh, then goodbye. If this is my last show, it's been nice <laughs> you have these, working with you. You have these extra pieces. Right. You have your minor league talent. We've talked in the past about your willingness to move a Sixto Sanchez or a, you know, now you hear the name of Spencer Howard coming up. Then you've got some of the, the players on the major league level. Somebody's looking at our rankings. You've you got the flexibility now with Nick Williams and, mm -hmm. and Odubel Herrera with an extra bat. And, and don't forget Aaron out there. I know he had a, a rough season last year. He's still got a lot of potential, and he's a great outfielder. So you've got potential chips. Right. What is GM Jeff looking for? Should Mike Trout not materialize? Because I can't have you go through that again this week. Why? Because it's the same thing you don't all want me, the time. You don't, you don't want me to, to raise your hopes for it? Exactly. Or? Oh, okay. Because I spent all offseason hearing about Harper and Machado, and I'm still right. not sold that either of them are going to end up here. And those were legit conversations, so I'd like not to make stuff and, up and to them be disappointed. And, and we're not sold that these guys, that we want them that bad no. either. That That's the awkward part of this. Everybody seems reluctant with both of them. Yes. I think Harper's is, because he's a pull hitter, and nobody knows what's going to happen with the, the shift rule. But again, if they change the shift rule, you love them. Then I do. And did you like... And did, I'd like did to you bring back Cole Machado. Hamels and see if they can coexist. Did you love Machado or is love the not right word? Did you like Machado more before his comments in the World Series? I like Machado more when he was on the Orioles when I knew less about him and the things he said and knew more about his play. Okay, so now GM Jeff has these pieces. Let's say yeah. that Harper and Machado don't work out. Franco's still your third baseman. Mm -hmm. You're going to need to probably add a bat in the outfield. What do you do with the pieces that you have now 
to try and fill out your lineup and, and get some of what you need. You've, you've helped your defense at this right. point. And I'm not allowed to trade for Mike Trout. You've established that, right? But you can if you can do it. But if you right. can't talk about you can't it. talk about it until it's oh, going to get done. Oh, I'm telling you, I could do it. No, no. You can't just speak idly. You can't do that. Uh, I, can t- I can get it done. Well, I mean, you could, yeah, okay. I might give up too much to do it, but I could get it done. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. It, so without giving too much to uh, do it. You, you, so instead you want me to imagine you want me to come up with imaginary I want you trade. to tell me who else you would look for because it doesn't look like at this point, you know, uh, basically six of the seven top arms out there in terms of starting pitchers are signed. Right. If you want to get a starting pitcher, you're likely going to have to make a trade for it. These bats are... Well, are you okay? Were you okay with them not signing Jay Happ? Yeah, I was. I, I I wouldn't have minded signing him, mm-hmm. but I've thought all along that if you're going to get an arm, that's what I'd like to trade for. I'd like to see them sign a big bat free agent and then trade for a pitcher. That's where I'd like to see them use the assets is to get quality arms. So if you have an extra outfielder, prob- you can package with somebody but, for a major league problem pitcher. problem is there are not a lot of quality arms anywhere no that, that anybody's willing to give them up which is why most teams, teams have one or two good starters and that's why you're seeing more and more of these relievers and the dreaded opener and oh, okay so that's a question that i have are the phillies going in that direction yes because they've got all these yep. arms now mm-hmm. and i didn't want to make your head explode before the conversation got to this point i wanted to calmly get into it and discuss it with you but now that we're here and you've admitted <laughs> Trying to avoid me throwing things across the room. You've admitted to me that um, it's going to be difficult to get that top flight arm. Yep. Your analysis of the Phillies seemingly going in the direction of having a bunch of different arms in the bullpen to supplement what they're missing in the starting lineup. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what I think is going to happen. I I, I don't think they're going to over trade. They're not going to give people away that they value too much. And what's going to end up happening is you're going to have essentially the same rotation and you're going to have a bunch of relievers. And so are you going to be able to complain all season that Vinny Velasquez is still a starting pitcher next year? Is that your prediction? Well, yeah, but but the, he's not a starting pitcher when if you're well, he's a starting pitcher in that he starts games, but he only pitches four or five innings. Now, for in traditional old Jeff's mind, that wasn't good enough. But the way that the baseball has gone in the last year and a half to 2 years that's perfectly fine, it appears, is, because nobody is new goes. Jeff going to be able to deal with that? The new Jeff is going to have to deal with it. I don't really have a choice. Nobody's making me commissioner tomorrow because if the, I've if already I made you GM, would yeah, you just accept GM, the power that you have? But GM means that I, just, I I have to live within the rules that are going to make my team compete against other teams in the league, and that means that you're going to have to. There are no horses anymore. That's the problem. That's always that's been my big gripe is that we don't have lots of even Aaron Nola if he goes seven innings everybody thinks that's an accomplishment where I grew up watching guys that went nine innings that complete games was was common it was not a glorified miracle which is what what it is now I mean guys go how many guys had more than three complete games last well now if they stay in the game long enough to get an official decision it's it's kind of a small miracle yeah <laughs> so and I was talking to somebody the other day about whether or not they'll how, will you ever see 
25 game winners, let alone 20 game winners. You won't because the guys won't pitch enough to get decisions. Let's look at the team's defense. Uh, they were the bane of many people's existence last year. 123 errors, costing them 58 runs on the year. They subtract Santana, who made 11 errors. Crawford, who made 8 errors. Replace them with McCutcheon, who was a gold glove winner and had 2 errors last year. Segura, depending on where he plays, are you satisfied that they've done enough so far to upgrade the defense? See, I don't think they had to do that much to upgrade the defense. They had to put people in the positions that they're used to playing. Yeah, they just had to move them around to where they were supposed to be. So let's assume they don't get Machado and and Mikel Franco's at third. I'm cool with that. He actually makes great plays. He just sometimes gets sloppy, but I'm okay with that. I keep thinking that they're going to try and somehow package Cesar with somebody and put Segura at second. Uh, I don't know why. Well, did you forget Kingery? So where are you going to put Kingery? I didn't say that it made sense. I just said that I just keep thinking packaging Cesar or putting sense. Segura at third and putting Kingry at second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, that was what Todd said he when he float, was on with he us. He floated that that was that 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 came up in conversation. Yes. I think there's a, a less than one one hundredth of one percent chance that happens. Okay. He is either going to be at shortstop, which I would put in the high ninety percent, or second base. So I, if you you're asking me defense, I'm going with Franco at third. I'm going with Segura at shortstop. I'm going Kingery second. You Hoskins at first. I have no idea who's going into center field and, and right field yet, other than McCutcheon. And I have no idea yet what they're doing with catcher. I was going to say, let's talk about behind the plate. So the other name you hear discussed, potential trades, uh, JT Realmoto from Miami. Is he a name that you would give up? some of your prospects in order to put him behind the plate? Some of my prospects, yes. Would I empty the system for for a catcher? No, I would not. No. Uh, I, I, I get the advanced metrics say that he's the third best catcher in the major leagues and all this stuff. It's not, he's not even Carlos Ruiz. Are you okay with their current catchers there? Are you okay with Alfaro as a starting catcher given his ability to gun down anybody who runs on him, but at the same time, give up the pass ball when you don't really want it. No, I'm not. And, and, I, and I'm not because he may gun down 20, 20 25 runners a year. The, he, the number of pass balls he lets, it, unless somebody can get him to play solid defense, then it's not worth that. Okay, you might scare people, but if they can just get by to second base when the ball goes through his legs or bounces to his left and right because he can't deaden a ball in front of him, then I have a problem with it. He also can't strike out 40% of the time. Nobody, you can't have anybody at any position that can strike out 40% of the time. It does hurt your average. I don't care about his average. I don't. It, it, there is no advanced metric that says 40% of the time it's okay to strike out unless the other 60% of the time he's hitting home runs, which is what he tries to do and can't do it. If he would just learn, he's so strong. If he would just, he, he could check swing a ball over the wall. He doesn't need to swing like that, and all he's doing is causing himself to swing out of his shoes. All right, well, MLB offseason is going to drag on. It seems like some of these uh, bigger names 
game. Free agents are going to take their time making decisions. So we'll leave that go for now. Well, we did get more international signing money, so we got that going for us. I'll let you explain that on a future show so that people can understand international signing money. That's how we got Sixto Sanchez. Let's move to what I think is actually the big news of the week, and it's not the Eagles losing to Dallas, which is enough, uh, and we'll get into that in a second. But Carson Wentz uh, now has a fractured vertebrae in his back, Mm -hmm. Jeff. Um, And I wonder how long he's had it, too. He appeared on the injury report in week six through eight with a back soreness. Right. And so, I mean, he's been dealing with clearly some kind of issues. You know, I I had somebody ask me earlier, I I got a message, and they were like, does this mean that he's injury prone? I happen to believe all NFL quarterbacks are (laughs) susceptible to injury. Yeah, and and they've gone back and looked at, they've gone back to his North Dakota State days and said that he's been injured almost every season. They're not the same injuries. It's, uh, I don't think that this means he's injury prone uh, that's just my I'm, I'm not a doctor but but I'm not worried about it from that standpoint he had a knee injury he seems to have recovered nicely from that injury you shouldn't be fully recovered from that knee injury at this point but one of the things that I've learned from trainers and doctors for sports teams is that when you're not right a hundred percent in one part of your body you overcompensate that's and, and you want I, I have no idea whether or not the back injury can be indirectly correlated to the knee injury. But if you're not right, it causes you to overcompensate, and your back is one of those ways you overcompensate. You wonder whether he wasn't completely comfortable with the base underneath him. It does explain a little bit some of his lack of accuracy the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not giving him a total pass, because if you're getting out on the field, you assume you're good enough to play, and therefore, you know, you're going to own your play. But you know, it does kind of give an explanation for maybe some of his struggles a little bit. Uh, watching the Dallas game, the first half was about as ugly as football. I mean, th- this team comes out so ugly in the first half of games, Jeff. It's it's almost unwatchable at times. I'm thinking a lot of fans have patches of where they used to have hair on the side of their heads where they just pulled it out watching that first half. It, it's they ran not bad s- enough it happened, but it happened against the Cowboys. They ran 17 plays in the first half <laughs> and got four touchdowns. They, in this game, were one of nine on I mean, third. Four first downs. Four first downs. Yeah. They were one of nine they on four third. Four on touchdowns, we'd be having a whole different conversation. That'd be wonderful. Yes, you'd be smiling a lot uh, more. It just, and, the, and they still had a chance to win the game. Mm-hmm. For as poorly as they started, it was tied, went to overtime. I was surprised Doug didn't go for two at the end of the game, given how tired the defense looked. They had been on the field, what was it, like almost 90 plays at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go into overtime, and you know that was where you pull your hair out. Dallas is just driving down the field. It's a 10-minute overtime. You get down to two minutes, and they still have the ball. Um, you know what the moral of that story is? Dallas sucks. Well, that's clear. Right. Um, so I've... This division is just putrid. It's... Ter- I mean, the Eagles still have a realistic chance to win the division. They do. They mm-hmm. There are eight NFC teams with losing records that are mathematically alive for the playoffs, including the 4-9 <laughs> and nine Falcons. The lead right now for the sixth seed is the 6-6 six and six Minnesota Vikings. Mm-hmm. The Eagles are They're literally... They're not 6-6. Six 6-7 six. Six six Vikings. Aren't they 6-6-1? Six, six and one? 
plus. Yeah, oh yeah, six, six, and one yeah. Vikings. I mean, the Eagles are. It's it's hard to just say tie, isn't the, it? Like yeah. like you just nobody wants to accept that there are right? now ties in the NFL. There's no ties. Yeah, there is. Oh, so the the text that I got was. Hey, by the way, if in overtime, the team that has the ball first kicks a field goal, not a touchdown, does the other team still get the ball if they had if the, the first team had the ball for the whole full 10? If they ran out of time? Yeah. Did you contact the NFL? No. There is a rule on it, but it was much more simple that, which was me saying, hey, this is in soccer. There's no extra time. All right. You gave me a good lead-in yeah. to my, my bitching. Uh, you talk about NFL rules. Oh, here we go. This is an early Festivus airing of now, grievances n- by look. Jason. Okay, the Eagles lost. Uh-huh. They lost. There were lots of reasons why they lost. Lots of reasons. Jeff, explain to me Nuh-uh. this is, how this when is there is you. a clear fumble that is an admitted clear fumble and five players from the Eagles team are on top of said ball <laughs> and one player comes out with said football in his hand and hands it to the ref. How is it not clear who recovered the football, Jeff? How does that cost you a timeout and a challenge when they admit it's a fumble, but they can't clearly see that the five people around it found it? According to Instant Replay Handbook, found it. a like player coming out it. of a pile with the ball is not a clear recovery. Right. If the players piled on the ball are all from the same team, then it is a clear recovery. Right. The decision wasn't even made on the field. It was made in New York. Mm-hmm. Jeff, explain, all the blank calls explain are made in New York. to me no, how that happens. I don't know. There, there is no answer to that question. I've yet to find anybody that explained what the answer is to that question. So I can't do it. Let's go You're to on the, your own. Let's go to the fourth quarter. <laughs> Dallas Goddard. Very nice catch. 75-yard run and touchdown. That was a very lukewarm airing of grievances. I'm not done. Oh, okay. I'm not done All yet. Right. Don't worry. I am not done. 75-yard uh, touchdown. Uh, called back for offensive pass interference where he literally did not, did not touch him. Mm-hmm. But they missed the targeting where he got hit in the helmet by Xavier Woods. It was a clear shot to the head. The moral of the story is don't touch anyone. But no, 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 no. Explain to me <laughs> how the only penalty committed on the play wasn't called that they called the penalty on the guy who did nothing wrong. Don't look at me. All right. I, 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 so on you, to... You want me to... You, you all... Everybody wants explanations of, of what the logic is behind it. The problem with the NFL is there is never any logic and look, apply it, it was to bad the rules that they on enforce. on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. I'm picking out three plays that impacted the Eagles, but you watch a lot of these games. And look, we had William Thomas on last week. I like referees and officials. It's I don't his want fault. to critique them and right. criticize them, but... It's getting kind of ridiculous. Nobody wants to watch the refs decide a game, and they're clearly deciding games. So let's go to play three. But the refs aren't even deciding the game. It's people in a in an office in New York that are deciding the game. Which I also I just don't understand. Replay, How many? To me, replay has not made the game better. No, it's made it longer. Right. The whole idea was, if you're going to make it longer, you're doing it because you have to get it right. And somehow, they're not getting it right. No. So then get rid of it and just go back to human error. That's not going to happen. They're, they're going to go to more and more replay. So let, let's go to... And by the way, I know we're not talking basketball yet, but 
there should be no replay in basketball. We'll Look get there. It. All right. We'll get there. You can save that for your grievances All next right. week, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Sa- save that. So on the final drive, Dallas is trying to win in regulation. Mm-hmm. Cowboys player tackled in bounds. Clock should be running. Flag thrown. So far, I'm with you. Flag thrown on what was an obvious penalty call where their left guard literally tackled the, the defensive tackle running at him. It would have been a holding call. Right. They picked, up the, they picked up the flag. Yeah. Stopped the clock while they did it all. Right. Had no penalty, no runoff. Right gave a free timeout, basically, of the clock. Uh-huh. And then the play went on. Again. What the hell, Jeff? No explanation. Uh, I mean, look, I always joke with people, like, you have one job. <laughs> Your job is to no, get... No, part of the problem is a lot of them have more than one job. But they should. I mean, They need to focus on this. Look, these leagues... They want to try and come out and embrace gambling now and all these other things. They're going to need to get their game right, or they're going to open up themselves a lot for critiques and criticisms. You can't have this kind of stuff deciding games. I was then shocked that they called Ezekiel Elliott on lowering his helmet. They haven't called that all season, even though they said they were going to. And then they call it there. Look, I don't mind it because right. he did lower his helmet, and I was surprised he wasn't concussed and didn't come, didn't stay out of the game. Right. But they called it there. It just, it makes no sense. I told you a few weeks ago that this last year's what's a touchdown is this year's what's a penalty. Mm-hmm. I have no clearer idea what a penalty is in this league anymore. I go get a snack every time there's a flag thrown. In a you must gain a lot of weight I've and eat a lot. lot of weight. Yeah. That's not a uh-huh. good theory of how to do things. <laughs> Jeff, we're gonna leave it there with you snacking and eating yeah uh why don't you stick with us when we come back we've got plenty more to talk about stick with us are you looking for a lifeline verizon new jersey shares communication lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in new jersey those who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills want to know how to apply all you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.NewJerseyShares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon Residential Landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares, keeping the lines of communication open for you and your family. Taking you into the weekend with the latest news in the world of sports. With the biggest names on and off the field. It's the Heart of Sports each and every Friday at 4 p.m. on 610 ESPN. With former players, reporters, and commentators like Adam Schefter, John Runyon, Keith Jones, Trey Thomas, and Doug Glanville, Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen cover the agony and ecstasy of fandom while weaving in conversations about the impact of sports on society. That's the Heart of Sports, Fridays at 4 p.m. Welcome back to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. Jeff, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we've got going on here. We are with director Jeremy Newberger uh, with his new movie coming out, Heading Home, the story of the Israeli baseball team. Jeremy, how excited are you about what's going on right now? Uh, I am thrilled to show this film. Uh, every time you launch a movie into the world, it's like giving birth to a child. So I'm very excited. This is the part where the baby comes out. To finish that analogy, uh, and to show it to you know to people in 
cities all across the country. It's like every filmmaker's dream come true. And it's a it's a fun movie to show. So when did you get the idea that you were going to do this? I mean, the idea of the Israeli baseball team in itself was something that wasn't familiar to people. How did you come up with like, oh, okay, well, let's make a movie out of this and make sure we do it in advance? So I, I lucked into this, essentially. I, so the true story behind the scenes is I had uh, gone to a Jewish sleepboy camp in the 80s with a guy named Jonathan Mayo, and uh, he's a reporter for Major League Baseball. And the two of us have stayed in touch since the 80s. Uh, he, he's no longer, he no longer has as much hair as he used to, and I don't look like I did. Uh, he wanted to do a film on find a, a project we could work on, so we had a few misfires, and uh, eventually he came to me with an idea, let's go to spring training, and we'll talk to all the Jewish players I know, because John covers the prospects, so he gets to know the guys as you know, before they become major leaguers, and he happened to know, you know, Kevin Euclid and Ian Kinsler and Ike Davis and all the Jewish players and it was a fancy of John's that he would keep track of you know the Jews in baseball so I thought you know there's something there I'll, I'll do it we'll, we'll go to spring training that should be fun so I went to Florida and Arizona with John and he took me to all the different fields and we went on like a you know a Jewish player scavenger hunt so you know we interviewed Jock Peterson who was on the Dodgers and we interviewed uh, I think the two teams that had the most Jews at the time were the, the Tigers and the A's. So at the A's, we met Nate Fryman, uh, Sam Fold, and Ike Davis. And at the Tigers, Brad Osmus was the manager, uh, Josh Zide was there, and Ian Kinsler was there. Uh, so, you know, after interviewing all these Jewish players, the, the plan was to take them on a birthright trip to Israel, and, you know, so they could kind of identify with being Jewish in the homeland. Uh, and that didn't materialize. The, you know, the trip was just difficult to pull off. There was no motivation to, to take them, you know, financial motivation, uh, until all of a sudden a bunch of these same guys were on the Brooklyn uh, qualifying team of Team Israel and actually qualified. And then, you know, it's like the heavens opened. We had money. We had an airplane. We had, you know, a trip planned. So I followed, you know, these guys on a trip, uh, including Gabe Kepler, you know, your Phillies manager. And uh, Sam Fulton. And, and Sam Fulton, who was one of the, yep. the guys on Team Israel, uh, to Israel after they had their uh, Brooklyn qualifier. And it was like a six-day intense, you know, VIP tourist trip of Israel. Like, you know, we went to everything that you've ever visited in Israel in six days. It was, it was like a Hanukkah miracle. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> so when, when you originally decided to do this movie and they went to Israel, did you think that you were going to be doing a movie about just that trip and the qualifying round and then maybe the first game? Or, or did you anticipate and were you shocked that you were then doing a partly a story on how the team was advancing and that they were, as you refer to them, kind of the Jamaican bobsled team yeah. of baseball? Yeah, so I had no idea that they were going to become this international sensation, you know, Cinderella story. Uh, full disclosure, you know, I, I knew Ike Davis, I'm a New Yorker, and, uh, you know, Josh Zide and these other guys I just met at spring training. So I knew that, you know, they were kind of journeymen. Uh, only a few of them really were major leaguers. Uh, so I had very low expectations that this was going to be, you know, the, the dream team to, you know, surprise and shock the world. So really, when we were in Israel, my focus was on, okay, well, what kind of transformations uh, are happening to these guys who are all Jewish, 
really didn't grow up with, you know, uh, full practicing Judaism in their households. You know, maybe one had a bar mitzvah, but the rest, no, they were busy going to baseball camp in the summer, right? So I, I really had no expectations of this being like an underdog sports victory film. That just sort of happened. And to be honest, after they won their first game in Korea, uh, I had a call to my partner back in New York and say, hey, you know, this, this might not be the short film we thought it was going to be. <laughs> the, the funny thing is at the time, Jeff and I would talk about the World Baseball Classic, and we were waking up early to watch Team Israel play, and I don't think anybody really had the expectations going in that they would win three games and advance to the next round and really do what they did. Can you talk? Undefeated. Go, go undefeated. Yeah. And, and, and so can you talk a little bit about how things changed once that happened? Here was the, the moment I realized things had changed. I got a text from my my wife's brother. My wife didn't grow up Jewish. She became a Jew. And her brother is not Jewish. His name is Jimmy Castro-Tero. Huge baseball family. I think my wife and his grand, grandfather played with Phil Rizzuto uh, pre-minors and was written about in Phil Rizzuto's book as the best shortstop I ever knew was Jimmy Castro-Tero, the grandfather. So real baseball fanatic, but never interested in my documentaries. You know, at family functions, I'll start to tell them. Size glaze over. He's not interested. They win the second game when we're in Korea, and I get a text from Jimmy at like, you know, it must be three in the morning from, you know, New York, that says, dude, are you with Israel? Awesome! Exclamation point. I was like, oh my goodness. This is something. Something has changed here. That's when I realized. And so they they move on in advance, and that's when some scrutiny came of the team, and, and we sort of saw that in the film in terms of when they beat Cuba, the questioning of the players and where they were from and and how it related. How did the team handle that and and what did you think about that as it unfolded? What was clear to me, you know, throughout their victories was these guys had confidence in themselves, uh, despite, you know, what I think was ESPN that called them wannabes and, you know, you know, they took that to heart and, and, but they were also really confident in the fact that they, they knew that they were all good players. They had, you know, they've been playing baseball forever and they're just as qualified as the other guys that they're, you know, playing. Some of the teams have superstars, yes, but they, they were confident. So when they went out there, they were the least surprised that they were doing well. You know, they were excited, just as any anyone is, when all of a sudden you're sweeping, like, you know, a round of a big tournament. But they, they had faith in themselves that this would happen. It was just the rest of us who were really shocked. How, how, did, how did the team react to the fact that, that Cuba, for example, was questioning whether or not they were a proper team? I'm putting that in air quotes. So, so really, I, I think they were sheltered from that. I yeah. Think. You know about it, and you know maybe either from reading or just from the film I made, yeah. where we happened to be in the uh, the press conference at the end of the game, and a reporter from Cuba decided to you know take pot shots at the team for being you know JV America JV because they lost, yeah, right, right. It was sour grapes, from, uh-huh. you know, from communist Cuba. <laughs> so it just it's a fun villain in the film, but the guys that didn't really that didn't really register with them. They were just focused on you know what they had to do the, to win the next game. Uh, it, it, it's a pr- when I 
I saw that in the film, I was actually kind of surprised at it because every time I watch the World Baseball Classic, I go, where are the guys from the Netherlands coming from? Right. You know, because right. you can go to, I've been to the Netherlands. There's not much baseball there. No. So so most of the guys, I mean, yeah, Andrew. The most major league stars. Right, right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> D.D. Gregorius is on the team. So, yeah, you yeah. got to remember that just like uh, these American Jews are playing for Israel, you know, all the Dutch islands in the Caribbean have, you know, terrific baseball players. Mm-hmm. That's where they're coming from. Uh, so, I mean, the Netherlands, I think that upset was maybe like the most remarkable to me uh, because it had, you know, Didi from the Yanks and it had Red Sox and it had, you know, it, it was stacked with big stars, including, you know, uh, I mean, you can look at the roster. It, it was a really impressive team. But the Team Israel pitching squad, uh, and it was a, there was a lot of pitchers in that game, really frustrated them. And they just didn't figure it out in that first game. And it went, you know, into extra innings, and they just could never really get a sense of who was pitching, what their strengths were. I mean, it was like a, to the benefit that these were unknown guys, you know. So that that – defeat was really insane. I think that's what people were most surprised. One of the things that that I did come away from the film questioning is there were were players that were asked in an interview um, about the fact that they were Americans. They were American Jews. How did the the Israeli people, when you were there, react to them? Were they very supportive of them? Were they concerned that they're... From what you... Just from what you saw. Yeah, I mean... A lot of the events that they went to that had uh, public visiting were expats, uh, you know, New Yorkers who transplanted themselves to Israel. Those they knew Ike Davis. That was one of the things I enjoyed from the movie was the New Yorkers who were there were aware of who Ike Davis was. Yes. Uh, the rest of Israel, it's sort of, you know, eh, baseball, eh, you know, no interest. You know, that, that was kind of the attitude. I mean, they're humble and love and, people visit the country. They love tourists. But baseball really isn't a thing. It's not a thing there. Uh, the Israeli Association of Baseball is trying to make it a thing. They're building fields. The JNF is involved. They're funding the fields. But it's not a thing yet. I think the victory they had the World Baseball, the victories they had the World Baseball Classic is going to help sort of change focus and shift. But something funny happened recently. Um, you know, a bunch of uh, players from Team Israel and some new Jewish American players went to Israel a few weeks ago uh, to get dual citizenship uh, and make Aliyah. So they would be eligible to be on Israel's Olympic baseball team, which uh, General Manager Peter Cruz is putting together uh, from the Israeli Association of Baseball. And we, of course, are filming it because we're going to make a sequel, Heading Home 2, The Return of the Mensch. Uh, and the day that they were there, we were looking at the front page of Haaretz, which is the, you know, one of the biggest newspapers in Israel. And the story was about uh, Israel's only gold medalist. You know, they only have one gold medal. Uh, can either of you guess what sport it was? I let Jeff guess everything. Swimming? No close. Windsurfing. So in you know the 90s, uh, there was a windsurfer. I think he won the only gold medal that Israel's ever won. The story in the arts was about how he was selling the gold medal because he was broke. 
So if you want to sort of climb into the sense of what sports are important to Israelis, it's not baseball. It's not windsurfing. Not windsurfing. It's soccer. It's basketball. So really, like, there has to be a huge shift in Israel in terms of warming to the sport. This was a certain, like, a great first step to be in the top six teams of baseball in the world. Israelis can see that article and they can say, oh, hey, wait a minute. But it's going to take years for this to really catch up. So two-part question. You mentioned the return of the mention for our listeners. When you get to see the movie, uh, you sort of develop the team mascot, uh, the mensch that sat on the bench. Uh, a large stuffed animal so I'll ask you about that but at the same time um, I enjoyed in the movie that the players after the first game talked about how they never played in so much of a pressure game and these were guys who had played in major leagues and playoff games and in big time situations can you talk about the pressure that was on these guys that they put on themselves to reflect well on Israel and the team yeah so a lot of these guys on the team didn't come on the trip to Israel with the core nine that we went with. And they had never been to Israel, and they have no connection to Israel. Uh, like I mentioned before, they, many of them really didn't have much Judaism in their life. So to represent a country on the world stage, there's a lot of pressure. You don't want to mess that up. Uh, you feel the connection. You see it. They're standing in a line during the Hatikva. They're removing their ball caps, and they have yarmulkes on underneath. And the world's paying attention. And it's, a, it's, it's important to them that they reflect well for the state of Israel because they're representing on the world stage. That's the pressure. So I think, in, especially in the, the longer, harder games, that's what you're sort of picking up on. It's they know that they're playing for something big, and they, they don't want to but before we let you go, I do have a question about the Mensch. Is he going to get his own baseball uniform? I think that's in the cards. Yeah? Uh, yeah, and maybe even a baseball card. Because Oh, see, that would be big. Yeah, that would be cool, right? <laughs> yes. So, you know what? We're going to Massachusetts this weekend, mm -hmm. and the Mensch on the bench uh, will be there because the Red Sox have a Jewish heritage night every year, and they made a bunch of uh, Mensch on the bench bobbleheads with the Boston Red Sox. Are you kidding? <laughs> and uh, those exist, so we'll be giving some of those raffled out at the screening because our film is premiering theatrically in Boston. The World Championship Red Sox, you know, and Jewish people sort of converge in Boston. As, and it's a great cross-section of both things. We got to talk to the Phillies about getting that. There has to be a Mensch Phillies bobblehead. Get yeah, on. that would be awesome. Yeah. Get on it, Jeff. Yeah. Combined with the fanatic. If, if your yeah. audience has relatives in Boston, please send them to the West Newton Cinema this weekend. Mm -hmm. We'll be there all weekend. They can see the film. We'll be there for three days. Jeremy Bleich, one of the pitchers, will be there. And a few other surprises. Great. We really appreciate you coming in on the show. What a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And good luck this weekend. Jeff, I always enjoy the interviews that we get to do and the insights that we get from some, some of the people. And we talk all the time about the impact that sports has outside of the field that they play on. That movie seems like a really good example of the universal language of sports. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've always enjoyed about sports. While this movie deals with one country in particular, that's not the, that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is, is the bonding experience of, of commonality, not only in religion or nationality, but also in sports. Sports tends to bring people together, and it brings athletes together. It brings fans together. And that's, to me, that's what I took away from that movie. 
I, I definitely enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it's just fun every once in a while to take a little bit of a different angle on things. Gave us an opportunity to look. You know, it's not the, the huge contracts that you hear about all the time. It's people playing the game for the right reason, for the, the country they, they want to believe in. Um, and so it's it's good to, to have things like that. Let's move on to Sixers before we close out the show. Uh, Jeff, Jimmy Butler injured his groin um, in the Monday night game. I guess this would be the appropriate time to go, oi. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah. Um, you know, injuries. They're playing shorthanded now. It, it's it, very shorthanded. Yeah, because you know, it Muscala wasn't just was him. But yeah, that's it. That's the Wednesday it. night you game. Muscala that Fultz's, was out. Fultz's, Fultz, and, you know, so tell me where you are on this team because it's an up and down. Some some nights, you know, the, the, the record, they're playing good basketball overall. We're, they're losing some games that they really shouldn't. Be. Yeah, but we're, we're, at, we're at a point, thank goodness, that – the regular season doesn't necessarily matter. You know, I'm glad. Who would have thought a couple years ago that we now be at a point where I think it's close to a foregone conclusion the Sixers will make the playoffs. What they need to do is make sure that they're in the top four so that they get you know a home field, home court advantage. Um, I'm not too worried as long as Jimmy Butler's injury doesn't linger. Players get injured. I mean, look look what Steph Curry you know ends up taking a month off and comes back. As long as Jimmy Butler is ready for the second half of the season and going into the playoffs. Uh, I'm okay. I'm not I'm not particularly worried. I think that also players go through ebbs and flows in uh, getting tired and I think we saw that with Joel Embiid. They sat him down for a game. He came back and had uh, quite a game. So uh, being shorthanded uh, I'm not particularly worried now. I'm, I'll be worried if we get to the trade deadline and they haven't done something to kind of bulk up the bench. That's where I am. I'm concerned with the lack of depth. Yeah. I think that there's starting lineup can compete but that second lineup that's not going to win you many games on nights where your guys are struggling or you know any of a number of combinations of what's going on and and the Sixers have gone through many variations of their starting lineup you know they, they keep having different changes of who's starting right now uh, I still strongly believe that it all falls into place if they get another power forward type player and that's you know you hear the conversation about you know the Lakers potentially trying to do a three-team deal with Phoenix where they would get Trevor Ariza. The Sixers might be interested in Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. Is that something you would you would think about? Meh. That's not. That, that, that doesn't, doesn't excite me. That doesn't excite no. you at all? Um, I, I want to ask you before we go a little bit off the beaten paths of the G League for a second. Did you see that the Sixers are going to wear their Nike earned jersey on Christmas uh, Day? I did. I did they, they, they've come up some, with some odd names for the jerseys. What the City the jersey, jer- the earned jersey. Yeah. Are it's you basically into, the city jersey, only white. Are you into all of the different jerseys, or is it just a marketing ploy, or both? I'm I'm not, but it, they don't do it for me. Is it, your son into it, though? Like, yes. that's who they're aiming at. Yes, they're aiming it, at not you. If if the the 16-year-old had his choice, he'd have every one of them. 
and that's what they hope is <laughs> that, that dad will spend money on all of them so it, it for, for that reason it works look the Sixers even have different courts and it's something that I, I mean I'm somebody who pays attention to the game but I, I've been at but games. your son pays attention to yeah the court. well not just that I've been with clients I've been with other friends and they'll sit there and they'll comment on the the bell sometimes they use the bell at the center of the court instead of the 76ers logo and people always comment on that and it's it's part of branding as you know better than I is is part of the game and the Sixers have done an incredible job branding this team from the, where they were a couple of years ago when the brand was kind of tarnished let's close out with something that was a little bit fun this week uh, you know we're on the basketball front we obviously do the regiment which people can catch every Thursday on 610 ESPN from 6 to 630 but we were in Delaware on Monday night for the Blue Coats, the Sixers G League team who came back from 20 points down to beat the number one team in the league, the OKC uh, team. Yeah, the OKC Blue apparently doesn't know how to run a half-court set. It was it was literally an entire game of them just running and gunning, and it it was getting exhausting. And I have to say, it by halftime, even though I know this team has a, a penchant for fourth quarter comebacks, in my mind I was sitting there going, "This this game is over." And they came back and uh, won it with four seconds left. And uh, you know we got to sit in the press area directly behind one of the baskets, and and got to see some of the most incredible dunks uh mostly from from cam oliver who who has the uh twitter handle of space cam and it is exactly what you would think it's because of the movie space jam who you can catch our interview with on the regiment uh if you go to uh com, you can catch the podcast of that interview with him as well yeah. we did get to see jonah bolton uh play a little bit too he's been assigned to the g league team mm-hmm. as he comes back from his injury he was not shy to take a shot Jeff. no um he his offense is clearly improving and and playing in the g league helps him because he doesn't get a lot of time playing on on the NBA team, but um, Jonah's not ready yet. Uh, Jonah needs defense, and I know that the league has gone away from defense, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but he needs if you look at his plus minus even in that game, um, he look he looks like an NBA player to be. With the short bench, it gave the opportunity for the two-way players, Shake Milton and Demetrius Jackson, to be up with the big team on Wednesday night's game. Um, your thoughts on them continuing to get some NBA experience to season them while they come back to the G League? I wish they got more. I mean, uh, you, you keep hoping the Sixers get the, some nice leads so that they can play more. Shake, I was surprised. He actually got in in the first quarter the other night, which was nice to see. Um, there were a couple times where he had open shots where he passed it off to Joel, and Joel made the basket. So uh, while I'm sitting there yelling at the television saying, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it, you know, the people I'm with are sitting there going, but he got the assist. So he's he's at least got a good presence. Demetrius didn't get the play, and, and uh, I keep wondering why, because I think that he would be... He seems like one that's more ready yes. to play. Uh-huh. Anyway, why don't we leave that there? We did get to talk to Coach Connor Johnson and uh, Haywood Highsmith, who had the game winner. Who why were both we, in good moods. Why don't we go to those game. interviews with them? We're here with Haywood Highsmith, who I believe had the winning shot tonight. Yes, I did. Was what, the, was, what was that like? Pretty fun. Yeah. Um, Shadona shot a good shot. Um, saw the rebound coming off. I tried to grab it. Went to the lane to throw my little float I like to do in the winter. 
We, we threw out a tweet during the game that you're not only 3 and D, but you're also clutch. Yeah. You you had a great fourth quarter today. Yeah. What got you going? Tried to play a little defense on um, offer, pressure the ball, just play, turn defense into offense, and just try to bring some energy and make some shots. You're supposed to be wearing something that we don't see on, but uh, tell us a little bit about the helmet. The hard hat. Yeah. Um, they give it to somebody every time we win. The guy who, like, shows blue collar tendencies and, like, shows, like, effort and stuff. So I won it today, but I'm not wearing it because um, it doesn't really fit on my head. In my hair. doesn't really fit on me. You, you talk a little bit. You guys were down 17 at one point. You talk about turning it up on defense to come back and pull it out at the end. What's it like to kind of pull together like that and really get this win out? I mean, it means a lot because we work hard to game plan against teams. A team like this was a very good team, has a good record. We um we try to do as best as I can on defense to try to just switch on screens and just try to game plan against some of the best, some of their players. But um, it means a lot come down from 17. It was um good comeback. But um, we um fought hard at the end. That's all that matters. We asked Coach about this. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenge? You guys had some travel issues getting in. Uh, yeah, um, decided to take a long bus ride. Yeah, so it's snowing in North Carolina, December 9th, which is my birthday. So I was appreciated. Yesterday was my birthday. So you got celebrated with a bus ride. Yeah, no, well, sort of, kind of. I was in a hotel all day, bored, stuck in snow. Um, they said we, was, we had two flights canceled, two buses canceled. So we finally got a bus at like, what? It was like 8 o'clock, somewhere like that, 10 o'clock, something like that. It's like an eight-hour ride, nine-hour ride. So it's just a long, tough road trip. And it was just just long and tough and tired on us. But um, we look kind of sluggish starting out on this game, but we pulled through. So What's that do for the team to be able to bond together like that and then push through the sluggish start to pull a win like this out going forward? Right. I mean, it means a lot because, you know, we got to make fun out of this somehow. You know, G League, not everybody wants to be here, but everybody, you know, is trying to get somewhere from here. So you got to make fun out of it. And I think this team has a good bond on and off the court. We joke and laugh off the court. We try to have fun on the court. So I think this group is like really connected and bonded, which is trying to change the culture. One of the things we've noticed is that on the sidelines, even if you're not in the game, everybody's up and everybody's talking and everybody's having a good time. What's that like? We love to support each other. We're yeah. all best friends. You know, we love to see each other succeed on the court. So, I mean, if something happens on the court, you know, on the sideline, we're definitely going to get up and cheer for them. That's our teammate. That's our brother. So we're just definitely going to get up and cheer. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate hey, Wood. Enjoy the hard hat. Appreciate we're here with Connor Johnson of the Blue Coats after an exciting win at the, uh, with four seconds left. But what that was like? It was great. You know, we try to get our guys in a position where they play through the end of each possession. An offensive rebound, you kind of never know what happens. The defense has to scramble a bit, and we got one. It's one that could definitely go either way, so we're happy with the way it did. You were down by 17 points at one point. We've noticed over the last few games, the fourth quarter seems to be the quarter for the Blue Coats. Yeah, I think I think that's the good way to look at it. Is that we kind of we put a lot of play with a lot of energy, and we never really are out of it. I think the bad way is to look at it is that it's a long game, and we can't afford to like get down 20 points and have to come back throughout. And it's kind of the consistency. Our big theme with these guys is just every possession, every play being consistent, and we don't do that now. But we have really nice stretches like we did to the fourth quarter, and our guys have some mental fortitude that they can fight through some stuff. But that's something we got to work on, and the fourth quarter has been good to us. You had three players with 20 points. Can you talk a little bit about some of the younger players? Haywood Smith had a great game. Cam Oliver had a great game. DJ Hogue put up 20 yeah, DJ's plus. really been playing well lately, and he helps us just kind of sp spread the court out. We play him at the four. We play him at the three. And you can kind of see him building confidence. Same thing with Haywood. Like, their first year playing professional basketball, getting used to it with the ups and downs of kind of playing well and not playing well, and we're on them all the time. But I think you're the 
kind of seeing them kind of catch a nice run lately, and that's been helpful. You talk about the ups and downs. You guys had a, a rough day the last day, some, some yeah. travel challenges, right. got in early this morning, yeah. battled through it, and still got the win. What does that do for this team going forward as you get ready to open your new home in a month? I think that it's a welcome to the G League moment of taking a bus, leaving at 10 o'clock in Greensboro with the snow and getting here about 5 a.m., but the idea of being ready to play every possession, that same consistency we talk about, no matter what's going on, no matter the score, no matter what time the bus just got there, that we got to be ready to play. So I think it does help us with some momentum of knowing that the season's not going to be, not every moment we're going to be waiting in control of the game. we got to come back sometimes, and we saw that tonight. These guys seem to play well together, but they also seem to enjoy playing well together. How did you develop that bond among these players? I think... I think some of it is we try to cultivate it by putting them in opportunities outside of basketball where they can get to know one another. And I think at the same time, though, we have a group of good guys who on their own are, are play hard and are are easy to get along with and are fun guys and Ryan Anderson's kind of like the leader of the clubhouse for us at this point and he kind of gets everybody together and I think some of it's a little coach directed but I think a lot of it is we have good guys that management and our GM Matt Lilly chose guys who can play hard and play well but also fit in with the culture of the Sixers and the culture of the Bluecoats. How do you harness the energy of Cam Oliver not only on the court but on the bench? Yeah I mean our guys are <laughs> we, have a, we have a lot to kind of get through but he, he brings Brings kind of a, an athletic profile that's not often seen in the G League, and he also has he's a high energy guy, and that's what we need. And we just want to keep him consistent, like we do all our guys. Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. We appreciate the coverage. Thank you.